Here we go. What is known about the period referred to as the tribulation in the Bible? What do you know about it? It's a terrible time. Okay, church isn't there. It's seven years. What else do you know about? What's that? What's that? Okay. People die. Yeah, that's... People are going to get saved. What about the Antichrist? Okay. Anything else that you know about it? You guys got a lot of the details. Great. Okay. Here's what uh, we have. Worst time ever. Last seven years of human history before Christ returns. Starts with a covenant between Antichrist and Israel. Ends with the return of Jesus Christ. During that time, great evil and demonic activity. There's judgments. God responds with several different sets of judgments. The seals introduce, seventh seal introduces the bowls and continues on. Many are saved. Time when Antichrist comes to power. And Armageddon that we hear about, that people talk about, it's going to happen towards the very end, whether it be a singular or a series of battles uh, that take place in the Middle East. We are talking about some of those judgments in Revelation chapter 6. In Revelation 6, we're jumping right in. We haven't met for a couple of weeks, but let's just do where we pick up where we left off last time. We are reading in that section where the Lamb of God opens up the scroll. And as he opens up and breaks the seals, some of the beginning judgments show up like we read in verse 1. I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals. I heard thunder. One of the four beasts had come and see him. Behold, a white horse. Him that sat on had a bow. A crown was given unto him. He went forth conquering and to conquer. I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And it went out. The red horse that was red, power was given unto him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, that they should kill one another. There was given unto him a great sword. And so what we talked about is this in the last time we met, that the seals are at the beginning of the tribulation period. It started with the covenant. So what gap is there? If there is a gap, I don't know. In the early days that the seals judgments, they are recorded in chapter 6 through 8. Chapter 7 is a parenthetical thought in the book, which we'll talk about beginning of the, the end of this week or the next. The seventh seal, as they open them, is going to be introducing a new set of judgments, which we understand as the trumpet. The, um, the seven seals appear, I think, they happened in the first half of the tribulation, and then the other seals in the second half. Um, so what we have going on is that the seals, as we read ver- the first, second, third, fourth, fifth seal, uh, sixth seal. Yeah, all six of them. They are going to, you're going to see a parallel between what Revelation describes and Matthew chapter 24, for instance. It describes Jesus is talking about the last days and describes that it's the beginning of the sorrows. And so there seems to be a lot of parallels. As we looked at a few weeks ago, there's parallels in Second Thessalonians 2 and other passages. It starts off with what we just read about the four horsemen. The first one was the one who comes that we are interpreting and understanding standing as it is an individual or a system, it seems to be an individual, who comes and brings peace, promises peace um, through, through activity. He's, he's 
overcoming nations, conquering but without a bow. And that fits other prophecies where we read that they're going to talk about peace, peace, but then there's going to be sudden destruction. They're going to hear about uh, that there's difficulties elsewhere, but there's peace in the land. Where he says, I will give you peace in this place, the prophets are going to lie in my name. Where he talks about the peace and safety, then sudden destruction. Take heed that uh, no one deceive you, for many will come in my name and say, I am the Christ. And again, this is happening in the very beginning. Somebody promoting themselves as the peacemaker for all of mankind and for the world at large. The, um, the understanding seems to be that that peace that is promised is short-lived because the second seal... So there's a promise of peace, but the second seal starts off with the man who is riding on a red horse. This horse takes peace from the earth, and there's a great sword, which we talked about being combat, being weaponry. And this agrees, again, with other passages of Scripture that talk about you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. Nation shall rise against nation. Uh, We understand from Scripture, Antichrist, as he comes to power, and and I think he's the one presenting himself as the peacemaker, As he uh, comes to power, his power shall become mighty. He shall destroy wonderfully. He shall destroy the mighty and holy people of God who is able to make war with him. So he's going to go after the Jews and the believers, um, the believers in Christ who do not accept him or his system. The third seal that is mentioned in the text is talking about, he says, a measure of wheat um, for a penny, and he talks about in verses 5 and 6. Our understanding of that is it's uh, a serious famine time. There's going to be what we would call rationing that's going to take place, that it's all of a sudden there's this, in a short period of time, there's this horrible, horrible lack of food, lack of um, of uh, uh, ability for people to feed themselves. That makes sense. Ron, are you in here, this room yet? Did Ron take out? What were you telling us, telling me a couple of weeks ago about Berlin? Okay. This is right after World War II. Okay, and Berlin was, there was still the conflict between uh, Russia, Britain, U.S., before they established all of who was in control. You said 30 million refugees from, that were German and over a million died of starvation. How does a nation go from prosperous, powerful, and then all of a sudden in such devastation? An industrial nation. Is it possible in a short period of time in the tribulation for that to happen again? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so what is going to happen is food is going to be very costly. Even the barley, which is considered more for animals, um, he's saying it's going to cost a day's wage, that's the penny, for that type of food. Which this, too, agrees with what Jesus said. Jesus said that in the beginning of the sorrows, you're going to hear about and see famines. So again, I'm trying to get you to understand all these passages, they don't conflict. They, uh, they complement one another. We talked about the fourth seal, which is death or it's sometimes translated as pestilences, either one meaning a deadly disease, and the hell, whether that be the grave or or whatever, or the picture, and we mentioned, could be the picture, they did have the picture of a, um, what do you call them, the the death character, Um, 
the Grim Reaper, thank you, thank you. Um, that concept was even in the Greek uh, society very common in their writing. So what he talks about in this text is great numbers of people, and we, and we were talking about last time that he says in verse 8, power was given unto them for one quarter, one-fourth of the earth to be killed with sword, hunger, death, or with the beast. So the people who have, <coughs> who have uh, lived into this time period and who are there, who survived in the initial destruction of the rapture and this appearance, and they've seen Antichrist come to power, one quarter. That's, I mean, that's a tremendous amount of people. You know, we, we read about it in Scripture, but you've got to stop and think, one out of every four people dying in that first three and a half years. It is absolutely phenomenal. Jesus said this would happen. You're going to hear the wars. You're going to hear of the nations. You're going to hear of the pestilences. And all these, he said, are the beginning of the sorrows. This is in that first three and a half year period. Then we stopped at this spot where in Revelation 5 it talks about those who are slain. The believers who are being persecuted in this time period, that they're going to say to the Lord, how long until you avenge us? This is in verse 9, 10, and 11. And they're saying, how long, long, O Lord, holy and true, do you not judge and avenge our blood on them who dwell upon the earth? And his response is going to be, verse 11, um, that he's going to uh, say to them, they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants and their brethren should should be killed as they were. And so the idea here is that a lot of believers are going to be persecuted during this time period. There's going to be a lot of um, individuals who are attacked by Antichrist, by his cohorts. And what it's indicating is that there's going to be many new believers coming to Christ in the very beginning of the tribulation period. And so we talked about some of the concepts about how this shows what happens when people die. But I want to expand upon that and remind you that Jesus predicted this too, that they shall deliver you to be afflicted, they shall kill you, you shall be hated. And in Revelation, we talk about Antichrist making war with the saints. The question comes up, and we didn't talk about it two weeks ago, but I wanted to deal with it today because um, this is something you're going to run into. When you run into the Internet, when you do reading of different books, the question is, how is it possible that so many people will be martyred in the very beginning of the tribulation, in the first three and a half years? How is it possible that so many are being martyred? How did they come to be saved in that first three and a half years? There's an answer that is given by a variety of different groups with different positions, and some of them even suggest this, that the reason there's so many is because when the rapture occurred, not everybody is taken. This is one of the arguments for the partial rapture that has that idea that not all the believers are going to be taken to heaven when the rapture takes place. Some will be left behind. And so that's some of the left behind are the ones who are sharing the gospel, the ones who are going to suffer the persecution. From those who hold this view, it makes for good preaching to say this, and this is how it fleshes out. You might be left behind if you're not spiritual enough. If you're backslidden, you may be left behind. And then what happens is God gets your attention that you're going to really get right with God at the beginning of the tribulation because now you realize it's all true. And so it makes for good preaching to say what? You better be right with God right now, and that's your motivation. Well, the reality is that you better be right with God 
all the time right now whether this is true. But that is one of the arguments that is given for that position. Okay, I don't believe that at all. The Bible doesn't support that uh, at all. The, the Another group is saying that there is a whole element called Messianic Jews, that if people who get born again yoke up with, or if they have any, any type of Jewish blood in them, they become Messianic Jews, and they aren't going to be raptured. They're, they're the redeemed uh, Israel that goes into the tribulation, and they share the gospel. And they make a distinction. Today, there's uh, groups that get together. They don't yoke up with churches like this because they're Messianic Jews. They're going to keep their Jewishness and Judaism and keep separate from others who are born again during this time period. How do you respond to that? It's happening. There's groups that teach this. How do you respond to that from scriptures? Is there a distinction between the Jews and the Gentiles in the current church age? No. No, he makes it very clear. That was the argument that was given in the New Testament by some of the false teachers that the Jews need to stay separate from the Gentiles because they're Jewish. And he writes to them and says, it's wrong. There is no difference between Jew, Gentile, Greek, barbarian, okay, male, female, slave, master. If you're in Christ, you're one with Christ. Okay. And so this idea, though, is some suggest this is how the gospel is getting out. Um, I would suggest to you that scriptures gives you an answer. How do people get saved? It's chapter 7. It's as if, as God is writing this, he's giving the details, and then he pauses and says, oh, by the way, let me explain how the gospel is getting out, even though the church was taken away how the gospel got out, and that's, that's all of chapter 7. Do you have a heading on chapter 7 in your Bible? Anybody have a paragraph heading? Yes? No? Okay, what's it saying? The 144,000. Okay. Yeah, the sealed of Israel. Okay, so um, Revelation gives us the answer. There's no reason to start coming up with new doctrines that don't fit Scripture. The book of Revelation. Now, here's what we've got is the possibilities it could work this way. Um, you, we've, we've got stuff on the internet, okay? Uh, tracks are given out. All different types of things are given out. Witnesses are made. You've shared the gospel with coworkers. They may not believe. Say the rapture occurs tomorrow morning. And all of a sudden, they remember the witness that you made. That may, that may conjure up into their heart, their mind, that they're, that they're cogitating over, um, recalling that w- what they had heard as a child, whatever. Now, some would say this, and I want you to take your Bibles and go to Second Thessalonians 2. There is an element in churches like ours that says if somebody hears the gospel today and they reject it, they cannot get saved after the rapture takes place. And it's based on this passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 
in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he's talking about it, which would diffuse what I just suggested about your witnessing to people and that those people would respond. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, there's this discussion that is preached in some churches, such as our churches, our, our types. It says in verse 8, that uh, then shall say that the wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume, even him, verse 9, whose coming is after the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they received not the love of the truth that they might be saved. For this cause, God gave them, uh, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believed not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. There are some who would teach from this text that uh, this idea that some people did not receive the truth. That's what the passage says. That there were some people who did not receive the truth sometime in the past in the regarding to the judgment time that God is making. And so they don't enjoy uh, what we enjoy in getting saved. And as a result, God is going to send them strong delusion during that reign of Antichrist, he'll give them strong delusion that they might believe a lie, that they'd be damned. It's very similar to a character in Scripture who um, rejected the witness, the warnings of God, who hardened their heart, and who God then hardened his heart to the point that there was total rejection. Pharaoh. Okay. Uh, so there'd be a parallel to that. And so the question that, it, that has to be answered is, when did they not receive the truth? When was it that they rejected the truth? There are, again, there are some good people who would say they didn't receive the truth during this age right now before the rapture. Therefore, when the rapture takes place, they have no chance of getting saved uh, at all whatsoever. So um, if, if I were preaching, if I believe that, then what would be my motivation to, in preaching? You better get saved now because if the rapture happens at noon, you're done. You have no choice of getting saved. Um, and so some good people preach that. Okay? I personally don't believe that that's the context of the passage. Okay? I think the context of the passage is as Antichrist is coming to his rule and reign from verse, the previous verses. And so that Antichrist, when he is to the point where he is doing miracles, when he is doing uh, different things, if they've rejected the truth that they heard in the beginning, the very beginning of the uh, tribulation period, there's going to come a point in that tribulation, especially when they come and they take the mark of the beast, they're damned. That that's the, what we're talking about, is when they've submitted themselves to Antichrist completely. But could they have gotten saved in the first part of the, of the uh, tribulation? Opportunity. And again, it's, you know, um, good people on both sides. It makes for, it makes for dynamic preaching. You've got to get saved now, because if the rapture happens, you, you can't possibly. I, I just struggle with saying that. Um, from the text, I would say this, which I think is absolutely clear, that what we know is if somebody doesn't get saved now, give me a reason why somebody won't get saved. Why, why do people not get saved right now? Pride? Pride? Family? Okay, what's that? 
comfortable? Okay. If, if they don't get saved now, or they might say, hey, living, for, living for, as a Christian, you know, it asks for too much. Um, you know, I, I just, I, I don't want to deal with the, the ridicule. What will my family say? Um, if you have those reasons for not getting saved now, and you go into the tribulation, how much more do those reasons amplify? Because if you get saved in the tribulation, what are you going to face? What's the strong possibility? Death. Okay, and your family. And so um, it's not going to get easier for those who say, well, I'll wait until the rapture happens, then I'll believe it. You know, you have, we just don't know. There's going to be so much de- deceiving going on during the tribulation, such a spiritual activity by wickedness. So I think, personally, I don't want to be dogmatic to say, if you hear the gospel now, reject it, you have no hope if the rapture takes place. I think the context indicates that's during the tribulation from the first to the second half. Um, Therefore, uh, those people, with that in mind, I think it's possible for people that you witness to that they may be able to respond to the gospel in the initial part of the tribulation. And, uh, but the answer that God gives is, here's how the witness is really predominantly done. It's the 144,000. And so we're going to talk about those in just a few moments. But back in Revelation 6, let's finish the seals first of all. Let's do the next seal, which is seal number 6. Okay? Um, in seal number six. Oh, um, yeah, we'll come back to it here. In seal number six, verse, verse 12. I beheld when he had opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, the moon became as blood. The stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree casts her t- untimely figs when she is shaken with a mighty, of a mighty wind. The heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of place. The kings of the earth, the rich, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, every bondman, every free man, hid himself in the dens, in the rocks, in the mountains, and said to the mountains and rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of his wrath is come. Who shall be able to stand? Isn't it interesting that these people are, are unsaved people. Yes, no. They're suffering that. Who do they recognize as giving the judgment? They understand it's coming from God Almighty. Who they're rejecting, but they understand he's in charge. So the 144,000 are going to do a wonderful job of witnessing and sharing the truth to those people, but they, they reject. The descriptions you have are earthquake, the sun black as sackcloth, the moon is blood, stars are falling to the earth, heaven looks like it's rolling up, mountains and islands are moving about, and the people then are terrified. What is this? Okay. How do you, how do you interpret this? Is this symbolic? Is this literally happening? Okay. So is there a literal earthquake? Okay, what would mean by the, the islands, they're moving? What, what could that mean? Is there a possibility that even some islands would, would sink? Okay, could the West Coast disappear? <laughs> okay, took care of that problem. Okay, <laughs> okay. what's that? 
the east the west coast oh instead of falling you're saying it's going to be elevated okay 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 so you're thinking it's going to elevate you're saying it's elevating either way we're at that same spot that what what this is okay it's interesting the first four seals were using human activity human characters to bring about um, a lot of this judgment. A character who says peace, warfare, and then it's creating the famine and stuff like that. The sixth seal is definitely things that God is, God's hand is definitely moving more directly. Um, the warfare could have been contributing to the famine, uh, different things, and it could be, you know, the weather as well. But this one definitely, this is out of, it, clearly, no man is moving in this one. No man at all. This is God moving, and it's displaying what we are going to, what we, he calls is the great day of the wrath, okay, uh, that the Lord is, is acting and pointing out judgment. It seems to be, to me, it seems to be at the midpoint of the tribulation that this is now escalating. Everything is moving, getting worse and worse, and uh, he's, gonna, he's talking about these multiple disasters taking place. And with those disasters, we have the great earthquake. Although there are many of them already happening, there's going to be a great earthquake unique from others that have happened historically. Okay, and so major faults shifting all, you know, it, could it happen that there could be this massive one that would shift from the eastern seas to the western coast, mountain and the islands moving, total upheaval worldwide. Um, it seems to be that, th- this is my reading into it just a step further, it seems to me if all of a sudden there's all this earthquake activity, it's going to contribute to volcanoes. That, you know, earth is opening up and things of uh, the upheaval there is getting worse. Then the stars contribute to it as well, which we, if we understand whether it be uh, meteors, asteroids, different things that are coming and attacking, hitting planet Earth. And it talks about everything's falling like figs in a tree, which are just blowing off. And it's, John is looking at this. He's seeing it. And he's being, trying to be descriptive. And so he's talking about something that's happening easily, quickly, that stars moving out of their courses like leaves falling when it's fig season. And with these volcanoes, it would explain some of the other mentions here in this text. Uh, what I mean by that is this. The sun is blackened. The moon becomes his blood. Okay. If there's earthquakes, volcanoes, ash is being spewed, what can that do to the skies? Okay, the blackness. Okay, the darkness. Can it change the color of the sun? Okay, okay. And so dis, uh, discolors, this could be that, that, that idea. The um, idea that the skies then are disappearing, rolling up. Could these ash clouds, let's say if that's what it is, could they look like something moving quickly or... You know, just looking abnormal. Okay. With that, um, there's been a few times in history, two in particular, that are called the greatest of the earthquakes that are in recorded history. And we're not going back millions and billions of years ago. 
Okay? We're going back to recorded history. There was the volcanic winter of 536 where a volcano erupted in Iceland and then within the next two years other volcanoes erupted and added to the ash. At the time what we know is they called this the, one of the many ice ages. And from records, from what they can understand, that the overall temperature dropped 10 degrees in that period of the year, few years that followed. 10 degrees in a global climate is huge. It's huge. Um, and this is called the Antique Little Ice Age. And the clouds from the ashes, it's recorded, and again, we don't have much history, but we have enough, that records that it lasted for several months. In fact, they, we have recording that there was famines and, and devastation that lasted for some 24 years. Okay, that peoples were, were totally affected. This one is more recent. This is within the last couple hundred years or so that uh, in Indonesia had an earthquake and a volcano. And uh, Mount St. Helens was, Helena, it was a major earthquake in the 80s. This spewed out 80 times more of the dirt, the ash. And when it happened, uh, over on the other side of the world, it affected, and the records we have in the United States indicate New England was affected for a year and a half, and uh, as well as Northern Europe. They call this the year without any summer because the ash clouds were so thick for that extended period. 90% of all crops that they typically had, they failed that year. So you had tremendous famines taking place that it is estimated that in just portions of Europe alone, a million starved. In the United States, the figures aren't as clear how many starved, but it had devastating consequences that lasted for a period of time. Is it then remotely possible that we would look and say, could this great earthquake of Revelation chapter 6, could it have this type of impact? with the volcanic ash, different types of things of that sort. And so, what's that? That's one volcano. This one could be multiple. Okay. Uh, and again, it's, it's an earthquake that's starting, and we're just saying that that's the possibility, which would explain that idea of the sun being darkened and things of that sort. Um, and again, I don't know if there's another explanation, but that one seems reasonable to me. Um, people of all classes, and he, and he listed, he takes time to list all different types of people, because he wants us to understand that who's afraid? Everyone. Everyone. Even the people in power. And so they, sh they seek refuge where? If there's a huge earthquake, what building are you going to run into? None, nothing man-made, Right? So you say, well, I'll go over to the caverns, you know, over by Hershey, Hummelstown. You know, run inside of them, and people are going to run, and the response, obviously, is, is panic. Fall on us and hide us, which, which is kind of an ironic thing, okay? They're running away for safety, but then they cry out, fall on us. So, so you... How does this figure that some people can contradict themselves? Does it ever happen in our society? Okay. Uh, it happens a lot. But they're running from the face of God in his wrath. And so those people who say that they're totally atheistic, in their hearts, what does the Word of God reveal? Do they, do they know there's a God? 
They know it. Okay, I don't believe. But they know it. And what do people do when they're in big trouble? That's when they run to the Lord. Okay, and so these people are going to be doing that. They recognize that God is involved, whether they're blaming him or whatever, but they're recognizing that him. And instead of repenting, which they've, if the 144,000 are doing their job, which we know they are from the previous verses, what would be the wise thing for these people to do? Repent, okay, and they just don't. And the question is asked, which he wraps up, he says, who shall be able to stand? That's an interesting phrase. What's he mean by that? Is he saying, who shall be able to stand with the earthquake? I'm just being tossed about. Is that what he means? Who's going to be able to stand before God? Okay, and the answer is, okay. Is there any other possibility of who he... Standing sometimes, let me give you, see if I can pull it out of my memory. Um, Put on the whole armor of God and stand. What does stand sometimes mean? Resistance? Firmness and resistance? Could it be who is able to stand against the Lord? Okay. uh, I, I'm not sure if it's standing for or against the Lord exactly, but the other prophecies make this clear. Who can stand before his indignations? Who can endure the burning of his anger? What unsaved person can stand in righteousness before God? No one. Okay, what unsaved person, what saved person could resist the working of God and say, you know, you're not going to do this to me. No, no, nobody. So when they shall say peace and safety, sudden destructions, they're not going to escape. And so what we have is that these divine judgments that are coming, they're not going to be able to repel God. They even know it's him, but they can't resist him. But there's one dummy, um, excuse me, there's one person arrogant enough to think he can do it. Antichrist. Okay, and so he's going to come out of that, out of that culture. Um, if we were to look at it this way, is there anyone able to stand before the Lord forgiven? Can you stand before the Lord with forgiveness? Okay, uh, but that comes through who? Jesus Christ, okay? And so the martyrs are mentioned, and so chapter 7, if he's saying, who shall be able to stand, if it's a reference to, is there anybody who God would bless, that God would look and say, you can stand in my presence in the sense of you're, you're my child. Well, chapter 7 then introduces to how that's possible. Chapter 7 introduces be the individuals that say, okay, how did they get born again? Before we do that, let me just pause. Okay, let's just think. What did these seals teach you about God? Well, we've just talked about, just in a broad sense. What do, they do, what do they tell you about God? He's what? He's sovereign. How so? Okay. Okay. What else does it teach you about God? He's sovereign. He's in control. Okay. Somebody else? He's going to do whatever he said. Somebody, I thought a voice came this way. Okay, he has a plan. Excellent. What else? I'm sorry? He's all-powerful. Anything else? Okay, there's going to be judgment. Okay. Anything else stands out to you about God? Okay. Okay. 
So if we just, this one's easy. This is where you jumped us right to right away. His majesty and power. It's evident because he's in control of creation. Okay. He's, uh, maintains, he maintains control over evil. Think it through. Okay. Does God minimize evil? Does he hold it back in this day? Yes. Yes. We often, people, when I say we, people often say, how can God let this happen? Let me change the, change the question. Good thing God doesn't let everything happen. Right? Could things be much worse if evil was given total free reign? Okay, and so he allows evil at times, but he still is re- holding it back, keeping it within boundaries. That does not mean, because he controls it, that doesn't mean he created it. It doesn't mean he's the author of it. You're a parent. You have a child that, that you helped to create, okay? This child is wanting to do something but bad, but you're holding them back. Therefore, because you're holding that child back and you have some control over them, that means you're making the child do bad. No? Do, do you, do you, there's no logic in that, yes? Does that make... It's a stupid illustration. doesn't make sense. But that's the same way of saying, well, God is responsible for all the evil because... He's, he's allowing only so much. Therefore, because he has power, God is at fault for the evil. No more than you as a parent are at fault for your kid disobeying and the control that you exercise or the, you let them do certain things. That doesn't mean you caused them to do wrong. Okay? It just means you're being cautious, you're being careful, you're exercising control for their benefit. He says, therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind, brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all that he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. The Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness. The very fact that evil agents are finally allowed to operate in the future indicates he's holding back evil right now. So he's, he's, uh, he's uh, limiting it. With his gracious patience is broken, that's when the disasters pour out. Grace and mercy that stand out from this. Holding back the evil at the present, seen by giving prophecy and warning people of what's coming. Did, did any of you, I know of a couple in our church, that they got saved through learning about end times? Um, years ago, there was a book, the, um, uh, the Great Late Great Planet Earth. Thank you. Okay, uh, there was those films, a whole series of films in the seventies, the Left Behind series, and then it got re- reinvented in the early two thousand or nineties. Anybody get saved because of those? Do you know of anybody who got saved because of those? Yes. Okay, so God in his grace lets us know about these future events so that we, uh, we take it seriously, seeing that he provides opportunity. Even in the most wicked time period, the tribulation, he is still letting people get saved. And it's, from his perspective, it's also a judgment time. But he's letting people get saved. Okay, and that some people will be able to stand before him in, in forgiveness, justice, and fairness. God is just in punishing evil at any time. The people of that day who experience this seriousness of his judgment, 
their reaction in Revelation 6, the last few verses, it, it justifies God's judgment on them. Because what is their reaction? What don't they do? When they recognize God is in tr- control, what do they not do? There's no repentance. There's no, they, they just say, you know, get us out of this spot. And so that whole idea. So we get to the 144,000. Let's just embark on this for a few minutes. Okay. The chapter is broken in two. And this is kind of, again, this is in the middle of the seal judgments. And it seems that he's going to divide this into the 144,000 and then their product or the ones that they lead to the Lord. After these things, I saw four angels standing on the four corners of the earth, holding back the wind, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, nor on the seed, nor on any tree. And I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was given to hurt the earth and the sea. Hurt not the earth, neither the sea, nor the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God in their foreheads. And I heard the number of them which were sealed. There were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes and children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. Of the tribe of Gad, sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000. Of the tribe of Nephilim. Sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Manassas were sealed 12,000. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12. Uh, of the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. Of the tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude which no man could number of all the nations. And the kindreds of the people and the tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, saying, Salvation to our God, which sits upon the throne and unto the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the elders and the four beasts and fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Blessing, glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, and honor and power and might be unto our God forever and ever. And... uh, he goes on, talks about it. Let me jump to chapter 14. Okay, there's going to be, excuse me, there's going to be a, an additional thought here. He talks about the 144,000 again in chapter 14. I looked and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice of the heaven as the voice of many waters and the voice of the great thunder. I heard the voice of the harpers saying they sung as it were a new song before the throne, before the four beasts, the elders. No man could learn that song but the 144,000 which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women for they are virgins. These are they which which followed the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So we're back to chapter 7, but keeping in mind, we have some description elsewhere that's giving the 144,000. What do we know about them? We know that uh, these individuals, before the seventh seal is opened, we're going to get some information about them. And at the time that he's talking, he's saying, okay, the angels are holding back the winds, the, the, the global effect. And uh, we know that the angels are often involved with even some of the natural disasters. So could this be, which I think it is, He's looking and he's saying these were events that were occurring during the seal judgments at the beginning of them. God had 
was already working. While those things happening on earth, let me tell you what God was doing up in heaven. He was having the angels hold back all those natural disasters so that we could get these people sealed. And uh, those storms eventually come in the form of the, the seals. Um, once they're sealed, these individuals, which, by the way, the seal has the idea of a ring, something that is showing what? Ownership, possession, okay, protection. Uh, it's the seal of the living God. He owns them. He protects these. It's on their foreheads, and which is contrasting to the mark of the beast that people will take, which should be on their forehead or on their hand. And so these people are especially marked. They have the name of God written on their forehead. As a result, they're, predict- they're protected from all these disasters that are coming on. Is there any time in the Bible that you have a similar illustration when people were spared from disasters going on around about them? Okay, Passover. How about some of the plagues before that? Was the land of Goshen protected from some of the plagues? Okay, so could disasters take place in a geographical area, but God is protecting some within that area? Okay, Noah was protected from the flood. The same type of idea. Um, So we have that idea that God is going to protect them. Their job is the question. They're being protected. They're being sealed. They're going to survive until the Lord is done with them. And their job is to basically be be the different witnesses. He clearly states there's 12,000 from each tribe. The question that comes up is, is this symbolism? Is this just representing uh, just any type of, of idea? I don't think so. Personally, because taking a literal approach, there's 12,000 from 12 tribes, which equals 144,000. So I think he's got a literal 144,000 Jewish males from each tribe. The problem we have with this, and there is a problem in the text, the problem is the listing of the tribes. If you've ever studied the listing of the tribes, what happens throughout the scriptures? It changes. Okay? From time to time, what is he, how does it change? How many tribes are normally listed? How many tribes were there? Thirteen. Okay. Why, why were most of the times twelve are listed? That means one is missing. Who is the one that's typically, that's, when they're apportioning the land, who is missing in the apportioning of the land? Levi. Why was Levi? They were the priests. They were to have not just one territory. They were to be spread out because they were to serve as priests. But they're not the only ones that are, that are unlisted at times. Okay? So you have these lists of the tribes, which typically they don't always agree in the order that they're given, which that just drives Westerners nuts. Because in our mind, it should always be the same thing, in the same order. And if it's out of order, we get all... We do our, our thing of whatever. Can you... What do we call this, Tim? Ken? When it gets, uh, yeah. Our OCD gets us. Yeah. yeah. Um, at times, certain tribes are omitted. When one compares the various lists... There's sometimes Joseph is split into his two sons, and he's not mentioned. And uh, sometimes the Levi's not mentioned. But here's your different list in scriptures of of the different times that they're they're elaborated upon. 
at different occasions talking about him. And it's, it's like, why? Why does it vary? Okay, that's, okay, that's, that's one of the uh, strong arguments that's given for, uh, for Revelation 7. Dan is omitted in Revelation 7. And the, the um, most biblical scholars will say the reason Dan was, was chosen to be omitted is because Dan was the first tribe, anybody remember? To go, into idol- to go back into idolatry. Okay, they were the first ones that gravitated that way. But then when they're given millennial kingdom settings, Dan is put back in. But Naphtali is left out. Why? What's that? They were a bad boy? We have no, no account of, of, I mean, all the Jews were bad at some time. Why don't you have a good answer for this? Because there isn't a good answer. Okay? The bottom line is, whom the Lord chooses, you know, it's... Okay, you answer me this one. Why did God choose Israel? That's the whole discussion of Revelation 11. Why did God choose Israel? Well, to show his love. But why did he choose Israel? He's God. He can do... Okay, and we don't always understand all the things. You know, we don't like that answer because we have to... We have to know. Okay, we just... You know, it's like when you say to your kid, they say, what are we going to do later? Just wait until later. And what does your kid have to do? They have to keep asking, keep asking. I'll tell you later. And the more they ask, the more you want to go... Uh, nothing. <laughs> you just scratch it. Okay. The more I, I, we didn't typically do. <laughs> the, the more the kids ask, the more is uh, well. Just for that, I'm never going to tell you until we get there. Yeah. Um, anyway, I don't understand. Maybe some of you have a, have some keen insight to it, but I don't, and I haven't found authors who do. So the question is, why is this different? Do we, we already mentioned Dan. Some suggest because the first in idolatry. Uh, Joseph is listed instead of his son Ephraim. That doesn't pose as much of a problem. It's just sometimes he is, sometimes he isn't. Why the variations? There's no clear common agreement. What is clear is that God remembers his people. What is really clear in this text is that God is going to pick 144,000, 12,000 out of each tribe. What, is God, what does that tell you about God and, and the Jews? Something. Yeah, well, he loves them. What's it tell you about his knowledge of the Jews that nobody else has at this point? He knows who they are. He knows their genealogies. Where were their genealogical records in the Old Testament? Where were they stored? In the temple. What happened to the temple? It was totally destroyed. What happened to all their genealogical records? It was destroyed. What wasn't orally passed on was lost to history, not to God. God knows the genealogical... Hey, listen. You and I have a struggle to know three generations back. Okay? 
we, we don't know our genealogical history. Maybe you're the rare bird that's related to George Washington, one of the 100 million that are. Um, but how do you know your genealogical record going back 4,000 years? God knows the Jews, and he knows their, their tribal... It's amazing that God, that with, with God. Okay, so the point is, God's not done with Israel. According to modern theologians, there is, no, there, there is no Israel that God's concerned about anymore. There's a whole group of modern thinkers that in their theology, who has replaced Israel totally? The church. And so all those promises and all those dealings with Israel are gone, and God is only dealing through the church. Okay? But the book of Revelation tells us God is not done with the nation of Israel. He is still going to work with them in a very special way. What we're living in is a parenthetical period of time between where God stopped dealing with Israel uniquely and only to get out the gospel, and that was then transferred to the church for this age. But come the tribulation, who's God going to invoke and say, you're going to be my witnesses? Israel once again. And you're going to be the nation I'm going to bless. So let's stop right there and uh, pick up in next week. Okay, thank you for your input.